Hello, everybody. I'm Jay Rollins, and this is your captain speaking. As a pilot, I hate to admit it, but did you know mechanical failure is generally not the cause for as many as three out of four aircraft accidents? It's even worse for cars, but large numbers of aircraft accidents and mishaps occur following a series of missteps taken by the operator. In other words, human error. I'd like to start today's flight to reality by taking a close look at an airline disaster that spurred the industry to begin aeronautical decision-making, bringing it to the forefront of aviation safety. And then we'll take a close look at a second airline drama that underscores why. Building reliable machines and teaching great flight skills are obviously vital, yet we continue to observe that human failings of judgment and decision-making still lead the way as the greatest cause of accidents of every kind, and aviation is no exception. Consider the tragedy of Eastern Airlines Flight 401 from the early 1970s. Long before the better-known value jet crash of 1996 that killed 110 people, it was an earlier airline crash in the Florida Everglades that drove the focus of aviation safety upon human error and judgment to this very day. Eastern Airlines was once one of the five largest carriers in the United States. They began operating in the 1920s, headed up by World War I flying ace Eddie Rickenbacker. During the 50s and 60s, Eastern held a virtual monopoly over passenger flights between New York and Florida. Soon, it was the largest carrier in Miami, and while they flew extensively up and down the East Coast, they operated frequent Miami nonstops to Chicago, Los Angeles, San Francisco, and other major U.S. cities coast-to-coast. They also operated a large transfer hub in Atlanta in head-to-head competition with Delta Airlines. Astronaut Frank Borman famously led the company during the 70s and 80s. By that time, Eastern had not turned a profit since 1959. When Borman arrived, the company had become bloated with overpaid executives. They suffered a terrible crash. Fuel prices doubled. And then by the late 70s, the U.S. had imposed a new policy of full deregulation upon the airlines. For his part, Borman trimmed the large numbers and perks for executives, embarked upon glitzy ad campaigns, added a popular Washington, D.C., New York City, Boston shuttle service, and with the collapse of Braniff Airways in 1982, Eastern scored valuable overseas routes. Soon, Eastern became the largest U.S. carrier to serve Latin America and the Caribbean. Yet Eastern itself soon fell into decline. Frank Lorenzo of the Continental Airlines Group purchased Eastern in 1985, after which Borman resigned. Lorenzo began systematically transferring Eastern assets to his Continental Airlines and Texas Air operations, which provoked a nasty labor strike, followed by bankruptcy in 1989. 
1991, Eastern was forced to sell their lucrative Latin America and Caribbean operations to American Airlines, which remains the dominant carrier in Miami to this day. Before ceasing operations, Eastern also sold their prized Lockheed TriStar fleet to Delta in Atlanta. It was quite the fall from grace compared to the glory days early in the 70s when Eastern first accepted delivery of the very first Lockheed TriStar, right about the same time when Frank Borman first joined the company. Late one night in 1972, one of the Eastern Star, uh, Eastern TriStars flying from New York to Miami began its descent for landing. Dubbed Whisper Liners, the Lockheed TriStar was their most glamorous airplane. These were elegant three-engine jets the size of a Boeing 777. First Class featured a chandelier and padded drink bar for goodness sake. But all that suddenly changed the night Borman was notified that one of the company's TriStars had disappeared from radar. It was late night, December 29, 1972, when Eastern Flight 401 smoothly descended over the Everglades, preparing to land east at Miami International. There were five people in the cockpit that time. The TriStar required a three-person crew at the controls, the captain, first officer, and a flight engineer. And for this particular flight, both extra cockpit jump seats were also occupied, one by a fourth pilot riding home as a passenger and the other by a returning aircraft mechanic who had been temporarily assigned to work in New York City for that one day. Minutes before touchdown, Captain Bob Loft ordered the landing gear lowered for landing. But at the end of the gear extension cycle, only two of the three landing gear indicators turned green to indicate its respective gear was in fact down and locked. In this case, it was the nose gear indicator which had failed to illuminate green. Captain Loft suspected that the problem was likely a burned out light bulb but he chose to overfly the runway and climb back up to 2,000 feet so as to allow more time to evaluate the actual status of the nose gear before attempting to land. He requested and ATC subsequently directed the aircraft to fly out over an out-of-the-way area located above the Everglades where the crew might methodically check the system without distraction. Unfortunately, Things soon turned for the worse after that. One unusual feature of the Lockheed TriStar was that the main galley was actually situated below the cabin level, and it was only accessible by a small crew elevator, and so the flight engineer had to physically leave the cockpit. Once he did, the remaining pilots soon became engaged in intense conversation trying to solve the light problem. When the captain turned to speak with the jump seat pilot, investigators believe he inadvertently bumped the control wheel forward, and with little notice, this action likely downgraded the autopilot to what is referred to as control wheel steering, or the CWS mode of operation. 
In this mode, the autopilot no longer holds altitude, follows pre-selected headings, courses, or otherwise flies the aircraft independently. Instead, it is something of a lazy man's in-between mode of neither hand-flying nor quite allowing the autopilot to do so either. The CWS mode simply holds the aircraft in the last orientation the pilot sets by use of the control wheel. The pilot is not in direct contact with the flight controls and the autopilot is no longer following navigational inputs for the pilot. Sort of a worst of all worlds situation in my estimation. Even where it was an available option, I rarely used the control wheel function of autopilots. If I chose to hand fly, I turned the autopilot off and I flew the aircraft. If I grew tired or preferred to busy my hands with another task than flying, like searching for a necessary chart or a document, I engaged the full autopilot system. Or better yet, I passed control of the aircraft to the living, breathing, eager-to-fly human being sitting in the cockpit with me, the first officer. Now, I will concede the CWS is probably the best choice during conditions of heavy turbulence because the autopilot is generally too reactive under such conditions and hand-flying the aircraft can quickly become tiring. And it is also noteworthy that military pilots may find such a system especially helpful in delivering armaments, supplies, or paratroopers over a target. But I digress. In the case of Eastern Flight 401, Captain Bob Loft, the 30-year captain, did not deliberately choose the CWS mode. Instead, he bumped the control wheel forward unknowingly, but this action nevertheless signaled the autopilot to automatically downgrade to the CWS mode. This is how investigators believe the aircraft began a barely perceptible slow descent away from the preset altitude of 2,000 feet. When the TriStar slipped 250 feet or so below 2,000, a small caution light illuminated on the altimeters and a C cord chimed at the flight engineer's station. Unfortunately, though, with the, flight, with the flight engineer absent from his station, en route to the downstairs galley and the pilots all engaged in troubleshooting the nose wheel light, no one noticed the alerts. Indeed, the captain and co-pilot were actually tugging at the light cover in a vain attempt to physically change the light bulb. I have no information what the mechanic was doing while all this took place or why there was such intense focus on the light bulb anyway since the flight engineer would soon visually confirm whether the gear was locked down or not. The important thing is that the light no longer mattered at this point. For that matter, not even the visual confirmation mattered anymore because a far more dangerous condition was developing by the second. The aircraft was slowly losing altitude and no one noticed. There are virtually no ground lights flying over the Everglades, so there would be no visual cues as the aircraft descended lower and lower over the swamp. At 900 feet above the ground, an air traffic controller did notice. He even called Eastern Flight 401 and asked if everything was okay. 
but he never specifically mentioned their unexpectedly low altitude. So when the crew answered that they were still working the problem, the controller returned his attention to other aircraft in his sector, and no one was the wiser. The pilots returned their attention to the light bulb, and Eastern Flight 401 descended into extreme danger. The final words between Captain Loft and First Officer Stockstill reveal exactly how far the two men strayed from primary task of flying the plane above everything else. And it was not until the flight descended through 200 feet that the First Officer first began to realize their tragic failure. As the First Officer set about dipping the wing to make a gentle turn to the left, he glanced across the flight gauges and settled upon the horror he read on the unwinding altimeter. We did something to the altitude, he stated, apparently hoping the gauge was in error. What? came the hopelessly hollow reply from Loft, even as the horror closed in rapidly from below. We're still at 2,000 feet, right? Stocksell half pleaded, to which the captain uttered his final words of utter confusion. Hey, what's happening here? Which was swiftly followed by the sounds of impact at more than 200 miles per hour. 101 passengers and crew perished, including Loft, Stockstill, and the flight engineer. There were 75 survivors, including the mechanic riding jump seat. Sadly, the post-crash investigation revealed that the nose gear had been down and locked the entire time. The captain's first instinct was correct, and all was lost over a $2.50 light bulb, which had simply burned out. Over time, mechanical improvements were engineered into newer aircraft to include a ground proximity warning system that alerts pilots when an aircraft is flying dangerously close to the ground. But ultimately, investigators blamed pilot error as the immediate cause of the crash. The FAA and the airline industry embarked on a major safety campaign to address the human failings which led to the crash of Eastern Flight 401. Over a period of years, the aviation community developed a systematic approach to aeronautical decision-making, which came to be known as ADM, and it is still taught to all pilots. Think of ADM as a systematic discussion of how to apply good judgment to flying an aircraft. But I'm here to tell you, ADM principles can be adapted to virtually any decision-making in life, whether you're a pilot or not. Yes, contrary to the belief that good judgment is an innate talent, the success of ADM training demonstrates that good judgment can be taught. And so I pass along these real-world examples to show how it works. One of the first ADM reforms was to develop a clear set of foundational priorities which pilots should apply to virtually any irregularity. Aviate, navigate, and communicate. 
What this means is regardless of whether the aircraft is a fighter or an airliner, a Cessna or a medevac helicopter, if something goes wrong, the first priority is always to keep the aircraft safely flying, aviate. The second priority is to maintain a safe course and altitude to ensure obstacle clearance as well as social distancing from other aircraft, navigate. And lastly, reach out to ground personnel for assistance. Communicate. ADM was meant to improve upon the poor utilization of the flight crew we saw with the Eastern Airlines Flight 401 disaster. Good aeronautical decision making, and really any sort of good decision making, is applied both during normal and emergency situations. One must always maintain full awareness of the current environment and the possible hazards that can emerge from it. Understand the exact nature of any crisis. Consider the threat that it represents and develop a what-if alternative strategy just in case the situation goes wrong. Pilots refer to this as risk management. Consider your personal ability to execute the plan against your personal knowledge and experience, always with an honest assessment of your personal temperament and even your state of health. Let go of pride or embarrassment to reach out to others who may have better knowledge or experience handling such a situation if they're in a position to offer wise counsel. For a captain, that might be the first officer, air traffic control, or perhaps even a maintenance expert on the ground patched through phone lines to the radio. This means in a multi-crewed airplane like an airliner that captains should clearly designate who is ultimately responsible to aviate, navigate, and who is responsible as the visual lookout wherever possible. These are life and death functions which should never be compromised for anything else. With the Eastern tragedy, the first officer was flying the aircraft, but once he engaged the autopilot, he allowed his attention to drift away from flying and navigating, seduced into an attempt to solve the landing gear problem. That problem should have been handled exclusively by the captain and flight engineer. This entire discussion of crew duties is specified in a new subsection of ADM known as Crew Resource Management, or CRM for short. Even where you face a crisis as a pilot, a doctor, or as a firefighter, it means that it remains vital in every case that the leader fully gathers all available information on the nature of the threat and then select and execute a solid plan to address the problem to include the assignment of specific jobs to every member of the team. Depending on the situation, you may want to consider whether it might be wiser to abort the mission altogether. If weather, in the case of flying, is closing in to create a hazard how important is the mission against how well-trained, planned, and equipped you are to meet the challenge? If you hold significant doubt regarding your readiness, then I would fall back on my military flight training, which lived by the credo, if there's doubt, there's no doubt. For example, with a light aircraft, bad weather will almost always dictate landing someplace else. 
where the weather is more favorable. Crew resource management for the airlines and most civilian flying is a matter of using the skill sets of your crew to help solve the problem. Look to references online and aboard the aircraft. Call ATC for assistance. If need be, as, uh, ask them to dial a specific expert who can shed light on the problem at hand. All right, we talked a little about the civilian world and how CRM works there. I've got Orion on the line. How are you, Orion? Good, good. So tell us about how CRM works in the military. How is it different from civilian world? Yeah, so it's an interesting question. Um, first of all, I think it's fascinating that the military got the idea for CRM from the airlines. Um, <clears throat> the military had been struggling with, there's a whole uh, history to this, that the military had been struggling with how do we get people to speak up when there's something wrong in the cockpit and how do we get people to work effectively together? And there, there's lots of mishaps in the military context, mishaps meaning crashes or, or something like that. Um, where they couldn't seem to accomplish that. They couldn't get the crew to communicate effectively. Um, and the airline seemed to have come up with a solution, which was CRM. And so the military kind of jumped on it and really absorbed it and has expanded on it since. But basically there's, um, you know, it's these, they have all these acronyms and critical skills, but the way the military does it is they split it up into kind of two sections. They've got the CRM, crew resource management, and threat and error management. Um, so basically the idea is you use CRM to mitigate threats or errors and to get back to uh, mission effectiveness. So that's something that's really important too to discuss. In the military context, safety isn't necessarily the number one thing. Safety is kind of on its like, while you're doing this, great, let's be safe, but mission effectiveness is the most important thing, um, which is a fundamental difference. So a lot of the decisions we would make may seem um, quote unquote unsafe, but the mission could be more important than it's the technically the most safe thing to do. It's the military. So presumably, you know, your job is dangerous and you expect that. Whereas in the airlines, obviously passengers expected to be as safe as safe as possible. So it's a little bit of a different focus. <clears throat> um, but basically to get into the details of it, CRM, they split things up into, you have decision-making, assertiveness, mission analysis, communication, leadership, adaptability, and situational awareness. And the list isn't as important, but the point is that all of those things go into making an effective crew and um, mit mitigating those threats that I was talking about earlier. So um, basically they've taken the airline model and you know, you, in the airlines you have the concept of ADM and they're using that and saying, okay, well, what is the difference here in the military context with our crews it works a little differently. So in a single seat situation with like an F-18 or something, you have a crew in a sense. So you're the only one in the airplane, but you always are in a formation. 
you also have the base and those are things that you can utilize and you have to figure out how to communicate effectively with them and get what you need in order to get the airplane back to mission effectiveness. Again, not necessarily safety, but mission effectiveness. Um, and then in the crewed airplane context with the bigger airplanes, like the P-8, uh, it's the same thing. You have those resources as well as the crew that's actually on the plane. And a big difference here as well is that everybody on the plane knows something about the aircraft and has something to contribute. So one of the big things that is taught is to start with the most junior person on the crew, you know, the junior enlisted person and ask them what they think. Now, they may or not may or may not be correct, but sometimes they are. And if they say something that nobody else thought of, you know, then you can uh, save the mission and potentially save somebody's life or something. So, and there's plenty of stories of that where junior person had just read something in the book that nobody else thought of and um, was able to provide a, a useful um, contribution. So when you have all of those things working well, that gets into the threat and error management thing. And you basically have this, the way they, we do it is you have this upside down pyramid with threats at the top, errors below that, undesired aircraft state below that, and then an incident or something, a crash or whatever at the bottom. And basically at each level of this pyramid, there's always a way back up to mission effectiveness and safety. Um, so with the, just the threats, so meaning like let's say it's bad weather or there's some issue with the aircraft, you can prepare for those. And there's strategies you can come up with to prepare for those threats and work yourself back up to mission effectiveness. Okay, we know it's bad weather, so we're gonna fly around it. Okay, now you're back to mission effectiveness. But let's say you don't do that and you get down to error. You end up in the thunderstorm and it's getting bad and it's shaking the plane apart. Well, now you have an opportunity to, uh, first of all, you wanna try to resist those errors. So. But even if you didn't plan for it, if you see it and you're flying towards it, hopefully you can resist going into it. But let's say you do, you can repair that error and work yourself back up to mission effectiveness by flying out of the storm. You know, turn around, do whatever you have to do. Um, but then let's say you get below that. You don't turn around. You didn't prepare for it. You didn't turn around. Um, and now the turbulence has gotten so severe that you can feel, uh, you know, the airplane get into an accelerated stall or something. Um, so now you have to recover and that's going to be the main thing. So now nothing else matters, fix, recover the airplane, you know, get the nose down, do whatever you got to do. And that hopefully will get you back up this train, this tree. Um, and if you're, you don't do that, then aviate, you navigate, communicate. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So it's like, as, as things degrade more and more, just flying the airplane becomes the point. So if you've already missed these other steps along the way, so to speak, then you've got to work yourself back down to that. Um, but the, the threat and error management is actually kind of a newer piece that they have recently included because similar to the airlines with the ADM discussion, then military realized that just talking about those like things I listed with CRM is, is useful, but it doesn't quite tell you what to do with it. It's like, okay, great. This is how you work as a crew. Well, 
but then then what do you do with that? And so this threat and error management was a way to say, okay, now that you are working as a crew, this is how you mitigate these things. Um, and it is the data shows that it's it's made a big difference, um, particularly things like being assertive and communication, leadership. Um, I think those are, you know, we often get asked like, which ones do you think are most important? I, I think they're all important. Um, I could probably argue for everyone, but um, I personally think assertiveness and communication can be probably, in my view, two of the more important ones that you must be able to speak up if you see something wrong and then effectively communicate that both up and down the chain of command. So if somebody below you says that there's something wrong, you need to be able to hear it as and the aircraft process commander. it. As the aircraft Presumably. commander, you're saying, yeah. Yeah, eventually. Um, but it may be something that, you know, they may not bring it all the way up to the aircraft commander initially. And so whoever they bring it up to, it could be somebody in the back. They need to decide, okay, is this something that I need to keep sending up to the flight deck or not? Um, so that, that's actually a good point, that all of that is part of the communication of deciding what level this needs to happen, especially on a bigger airplane where you've got, you know, nine, ten people. Not everybody needs to be involved in every decision, but um, they might be. It depends we on how that. severe it is. We have that problem in the airlines, actually, in the large, wide-body aircraft, uh, like what I flew, the 767, w might have 11, 12 flight attendants. And it's the same situation. If they see something they consider to be hazardous, they generally go to the number one flight attendant, the premium, and they would uh, explain the problem to them, and then the premium would decide whether the, the premium is the one who should be contacting the, the, co the cockpit so that you're not burdened every few minutes by one of the 11 or 12 people that want to say something. Uh, it's all funneled that way. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot of sense. Um, and so, like I said, it's been uh, very effective for the military. Um, but you know each one of those skills that I listed, you could really you can have a, I could discuss thirty minutes on each one of them because it's important to how do you be assertive, you know how do you um, be flexible. That's all sometimes easier said than done. This whole topic of uh, aeronautical decision making is uh, quite vast, and it's not it, it it's a very important process of learning because some of it is experience, judgment, uh, and the mission is so important. What is the mission of your particular uh, flying? So uh, I think we've covered it, at least the highlights of it. it. It's also one of those things that can be adjusted easily according to what type of flying you're doing, but also even in management or in general life that what you do is adjust the major principles according to your needs for whatever it is that you're trying to deal with in everyday judgment. Uh, Ryan, I know you're getting ready to uh, begin your training, as they say, uh, in your uh, military classes and stuff, so I won't hold you any longer. I really appreciate your input and uh, trust that you will have a, a great time of your training. All righty. Thank you. All right. Have a great day. You too.
So let's consider what about situations where a pilot may not enjoy the luxury of time to think through and find the absolute most perfect decision. This is where judgment born of experience and training can enable that flash of inspiration to make a solid choice from many possibilities that might be available. Human beings maintain a distinct advantage over computers to improvise solutions without going over every possible choice out there. So make use of it. Know that depending on how much time you have to make a decision that you may not make the very best choice. What matters is whether your choice is reasonable given the circumstances at hand. When the landing gear anomaly first appeared, Captain Loft was wise to overfly the airport in favor of going someplace less crowded to work the problem. Had the aircraft been on fire and the landing gear green light failed to illuminate, then he would undoubtedly have landed immediately anyway. In our next example, hopefully you'll see that if time is critical, rely upon finding the most workable, appropriate solution and go for it. Make a sensible decision and then keep to the script with only slight alterations as necessary to see it through. Don't abandon your plan. Unless there is an obvious and overriding reason to reject it outright in favor of a clearly better choice. On the other hand, if your solution is clearly not going well, be open to adjustments. Perhaps your original assessment is wrong. When a better solution is offered, never fall into the trap of rejecting a better plan in order to save face. So let's look at another airline drama. Consider the case of a Boeing 767, a 400,000 pound wide body with two large fan jets and a two-man cockpit crew. Now imagine two men merrily flying along at a 41,000 foot cruise altitude on a non-stop flight from Montreal to Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. They're at the midpoint of the journey when seemingly out of nowhere an amber aft low-pressure fuel light illuminates for the left-hand engine. This particular caution light informs the crew that the rearmost fuel pump pressure is low on the left side, but then before they had the opportunity to confirm whether the engine would continue to operate with this condition or not, the forward low-pressure fuel light illuminated on the same side, and with apparently no positive fuel pressure at all, the left engine began to wind down. At that point, Captain Bob Pearson began a descent with with a plan to land in Winnipeg, Manitoba. He called for the engine failure checklist and attempted a restart, but that was interrupted when the right-hand fuel pumps began to fail one by one as the plane descended through about 35,000 feet. Suddenly, the right-hand engine also quit. So now, Captain Pearson instructed Flight Officer Quintal to forget about the single-engine procedures and begin reading from the dual-engine failure checklist instead. With the loss of both engines and their respective generators, all electrical power was lost except for the limited power supplied by the battery. Virtually all electronic equipment dropped offline. No engines and no generators also meant the loss of critical flight controls. 
Under normal circumstances, the Giant 767 has three hydraulic systems to ensure power to operate the flight controls, but all the hydraulic pumps require either electricity or a turning engine to keep the pumps pressurizing the system. The last line of defense are accumulator cylinders, which maintain a head of pressure on certain parts of the system, but only for a short burst of time. There are no direct mechanical connections for the pilots to control the aircraft with, without some measure of hydraulic power. Captain Pearson did have the option to try and start an auxiliary power unit, otherwise known as an APU, which might have provided much-needed electrical power to keep the battery charged up. The APU is a small jet engine recessed into the fuselage that airline passengers often hear running at the gate, where it is used to provide electricity and air conditioning for the aircraft once the main engines are shut down. Many twin jets, like the 767, are equipped with APUs that can be operated not only on the ground but also in flight. Most usually it, it's done as a standby third generator for backup electrical power in an emergency for two-engine aircraft. So why didn't Pearson use it? The answer is simple. The APU requires fuel to operate the very reason why both main engines quit in the first place. The aircraft was out of fuel. Nevertheless, the Boeing 767 was designed with an important backup feature in the highly unlikely event that both engines would fail. When the system sensed a loss of generator power, a ram air turbine or a RAT system automatically deployed into the windstream and within seconds a small propeller spun up a small generator able to generate just enough power to run a small portion of one of the hydraulic systems to allow for limited flight controls. The wind-driven rat requires no fuel and it starts without the danger of drawing down the battery, which was now the only source of critical electricity to enable operation of, of the radios, emergency hydraulic pump for limited flight controls, and other key features. Aside from the working rat, the flight crew also enjoyed the benefit of good weather and daylight. Now they were effectively piloting a glider, though, an aircraft with no engine sounds, only the sound of passing air, and 61 frightened passengers to witness it. As fate would have it, Captain Pearson just happened to be a glider pilot in his free time. So while he set about to determine an optimum speed to glide the 767 to allow for maximum range, First Officer Quintal calculated they would not make it as far as Winnipeg. As a former Royal Canadian Air Force pilot, Quintal suggested a closed but much closer Royal Canadian Air Force base known as RCAF Gimli for landing. So this is the story of how Air Canada Flight 143 came to be known as the Gimli Glider. That fate-filled day, July 23rd, 1983. Once Pearson spotted the landing strip and lined up for touchdown, 
they used an emergency system to lower the landing gear. The main gear locked down, but you guessed it, the nose gear did not. The silent airliner was approaching much faster than even a normal landing because the limited hydraulics made it impossible to extend the flaps. Even so, as Pearson skillfully lined up the aircraft for touchdown, the flight crew was in for one final surprise. The abandoned Air Force Base was really not abandoned after all. Part of the landing strip had been converted into Gimli Motorsports Park, including a race course, go-kart track, and a drag strip. A large event was actually taking place as the Air Canada swooped in for a landing. Families were barbecuing to either side of the runway, and a couple of young boys were racing bicycles on the strip. Even as Pearson touched down, he hedged the plane to one side in an effort to miss them, but the boys managed to leap out of the way at the very last minute. There were minor injuries during the passenger evacuation, but no one died, and the aircraft even returned to regular passenger service following repairs. You might guess Captain Pearson was celebrated similar to Captain Sully Sullenberg of the Miracle Landing on the Hudson fame. But nope, you would be wrong. Air Canada officials actually demoted him for six months instead. Why? Investigators deemed it was his error that the engines quit in the first place. This particular airplane was the first to be delivered with gauges calibrated to the metric system. Fuelers on the ground in Montreal fouled up the mathematical conversions from pounds to liters of fuel, and Pearson failed to catch the discrepancy, and he accepted the airplane with two inoperative fuel gauges to boot and then relied upon the faulty calculations such that he ended up with only half the fuel he should have loaded. Comparing these two airline incidents is a study in human error, mechanical malfunction, but above all, they illustrate the importance of exercising good judgment no matter what. Remember, airline captains are paid handsomely, not so much for their great flying skills, that much is to be expected. A fully functioning autopilot can do an excellent job flying the aircraft. Ideally, captains are paid and punished for their aeronautical decision-making responsibilities. So that's it for Episode 6. I'm Jay Rollins. Until next time, please remember, this is your captain speaking. Thank you.